2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 11 and see what the Word of God says to us this week. Uh, we are a Bible-believing church. We believe the Bible is God's breathed Word, that He breathed through prophets throughout the ages so that the church can know who God is and what God expects. And so we believe that God has not left us alone to flounder and to wonder what we're supposed to do, but God gives us clear directives in our mission. Our mission is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to teach what Christ had taught his disciples and what they have written down. And uh, we also believe that we are to be the church, that we are to minister to the world around us. We're to minister to God, uh, minister back to God in worship, which we just did here this morning, and I just love our worship team leading us in worship. It really is a, a supernatural act of worship that we are doing here together, whether you feel it or not, as you stand and declare the praises of God, and you sing to God and give thanks to Him. It is a supernatural act of worship, and in that way we are ministering to God. And also we are called to minister to one another, that we are to love one another, we are to walk alongside one another, and as many of you are going through health issues, and many, some of you are in need, and, uh, you know, I think about Sandy, who this Tuesday will be having uh, knee replacement surgery, which is a big deal, and we know a little bit about the knee stuff going on in our family, and I recognize just how, how big of an ordeal that will be, and so, you know, as we think about those things, we want to walk alongside the O'Hagans, and we want to walk alongside one another and comfort and encourage and bless each other in fellowship. And in that way, we minister to one another. But then we are also called to minister to the world, to get out into the world, to shine the light of Jesus Christ, to live as Christ, and in those opportune moments, to share Christ, to share his word, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that hopefully the world will turn from their sin and believe in the Lord and, and believe in salvation. And so we are called to be ministers of God. And we believe that his word is one of the most important things that we need to know as believers because we believe it is his word. But one of the things, one conversation I've been getting into quite a bit, and usually I can tell that this is a topic that God wants me to discuss but as you know, we're going through the Bible, and uh, what's great is that when the topics that are, that are being discussed outside of my preparation for sermons just happens to line up with the exact sermon that I'm studying and that I'm teaching, that happens more often than you know, and I just love it when things like that happen, when your, your just practical life and your, your living intersect with just the Holy Spirit of God working and doing what He does. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about this week. The topic that has been coming up is uh, how do we know if other people are saved? And are we supposed to know if other people are saved? Because you probably hear the Christian platitude all the time, judge not lest ye be judged, right? People like to use that and throw that around to basically say, don't you dare look at my life, and it's not for you to judge whether I'm saved or not. Or, you know, you don't know the things that I'm going through, the battles that I'm going through, so how dare you even judge or criticize me in my life? But um, as we read through the scriptures, especially the letters of Paul, we find that we as believers do have a responsibility 
to hold one another accountable for our faith and the faith that we're living. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church, but rather we judge those inside of the church? And we read about church discipline. We read about correcting and rebuking and training. So very much uh, we are called to cross-examine one another. And that as you enter into a church fellowship, that's part and parcel of our fellowship with one another is that you open yourself up for such criticism from other believers. Now, of course, we know that people can abuse that criticism, that people can try and lord over your life by using those examples of Scripture. But really, if it's done the right way and it's done in love, it is meant for our good. It is meant to build us up and to sanctify us in the truth. And so with that in mind, because we do know that the church is meant to be a sanctifying agent for every believer here on earth, then how are we supposed to know if you're a believer, if she's a believer, if he's a believer, as we gather together and we say that, yes, I am a Christian, is there a way that we can truly know and also truly boast about one another's faith? Because what we're going to find here in the text today is that Paul is going to call on the church at Corinth to boast of his faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's a very important thing, I think, for us to be aware of what are some of the things that we need to look for in one another to truly know that one another knows the Lord and that the Lord knows one another and that therefore we can boast in each other's faith. And I think that's important. I think it's important that those we fellowship with, we have a good idea of where is their faith? Are they truly saved or are they only fooling themselves? Do they simply claim to believe in Jesus or is it a genuine heart felt deep love and treasuring of the Lord and Savior Jesus who died for our sins. And so that's what we're going to look at today in this text. Um, last week we concluded uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul wrote about the supremacy of our heavenly dwelling or our heavenly bodies that we can look forward to and that now we are living in our earthly tents which are vulnerable, which... Um, are uh, weak, and we look forward to our heavenly building, which is strong and which is forever. And so as we consider those things, Paul then transitioned into the thought of evangelism. The final thought he had from last week, he wrote, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So because of the hope that we have of our heavenly dwelling and our heavenly bodies, we try to persuade others. We don't keep this treasure to ourselves. We don't bury it in the ground somewhere, but rather we go and we share it with the world. If we truly believe that salvation and our heavenly dwelling is the highest treasure that we can have here on earth, then we ought to share that with the world. And so this is where we continue our study through Paul's letter and God's word to his people. So let's pray and we'll dig right in. Father, it's so good to know you. And it's even better to be known by you. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for the church, a true gift, a sanctifying agent for all of us, that we can grow in knowledge and wisdom and righteousness 
that even while we're in this earthly tent, Lord, we can do everything that we can so long as it depends on us to return thanks to you for what you've done. God, you have sent your son. He died on the cross. You rose again. And he sealed our salvation for all eternity. So God, we lift up praises to you. We minister back to you the praises that are due. We dedicate our time to knowing your word, to knowing what's expected of us, to unpacking all that there is to know about you and your character. And Father, we are committed to ministering to one another. And I pray that today that as we study your word together, that each life is built up and encouraged here this morning. And Father, as we leave this place today, may we carry that light that is ignited here this morning. And may we shine a light to this lost and dying world. May we persuade others by love, by good works, and by your spirit. And so, Father, work in this place. If there's anyone here who is uncertain of their salvation, may they leave here today absolutely certain that they know you and that you know them in return. And so, Father, do your work. I forfeit myself to you. Let it be your words that speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text we'll look at is the second half of verse 11 on through verse 17, which says, But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may, may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. <clears throat> Behold, the new has come. Now, there's a lot that is being said in this section of Scripture. And if we were in a systematic theology class, we could probably spend at least three months unpacking all the different theological items that are found in this text. But for the sake of time this morning... Uh, we are going to look at the big idea that Paul is trying to express here, and I will try to avoid too many rabbit trails this morning so we can leave here hopefully with one central idea of, of what is God trying to say to the church here today. So first of all, I want to begin with his first words here, which are just very powerful. And, and if you don't stop to really think about it, you might miss it. But I want to stop to think about it because it is just that powerful. So Paul here says, but what we are is known to God. What does it mean to be known to God? I think the most important question in our life is not, do you know God? The most important question is, does God know you? 
Because when we think about the words of Jesus, we know that there will be many who will claim and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy? Lord, did we not express wisdom and knowledge of, of your scriptures? Did we, not, did we not know you, Lord? But then Jesus will say to some, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what this means is that there will be some who will claim to be believers or followers of Jesus or say, oh yeah, I know Jesus. But yet when they stand before him, he'll look at them as if they're a stranger. And he'll say, you claim to know me, but I don't know you. And that ought to be the scariest thought for any mortal human being to stand before the king, the creator of the universe, and for him to say, I don't know you. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Go out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth because you are not welcome here because I just don't know you. You're not on my list. And so it's a scary thought, and that's why the most important question is not, do you know God? The most important question is, does he know you? So how do we know if we are known by God? Well, to be known by God means that you are truly saved and you are truly changed by God because you cannot be known by God without truly changing. You don't get into a relationship with God without it changing you and oftentimes changing you radically. Change is a big part of, of understanding that we are known by God. Because if you're known by God, your identity is no longer your own. You don't just get to pick from a, a spectrum of identities. You don't just get to say, well, that one's neat to me, and I want the flag that goes with it. No, but rather, if you are known by God, then you identify with God. He's the one who declares your identity. You forfeit your own decision-making when it comes to your identity because Christ tells us who we are. You belong to him, and you are fully submitted to his definition of who you are and his guidance for righteous living. And so how do we become known by God? Well, simply, we genuinely receive and declare Jesus as the Lord of our life. If you say, Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is, is Lord, then you will be saved. It's that simple. It's simply you saying, I am taking away my, my own lordship, and I am forfeiting it, and I'm laying down my life, and I'm giving it to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord and the commander-in-chief of my life. And so this forfeiting requires a full submission. And to not be known by God, when we consider that God said through Psalm 101.4, a perverse heart shall be far from me, I will know nothing of evil. That's the thing with God, is God is so holy. He is perfect. He knows no sin. He knows no evil, and he will not allow evil to come into his heavenly dwelling. 
And so many people like to ask the question, well, why did God go through all this trouble after Adam and Eve sinned, you know, and he said, you will surely die. Then suddenly they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and they were, uh, the world became broken and fallen and corrupt. And then all of a sudden God says, well, yes, but I'm going to make a way for you to be saved. And then he ultimately anoints his people Israel uh, he, he blesses them, he calls them, he elects them to be his people. And then his people who have his word go on sinning and falling. They're a stiff-necked people, just back and forth. They turn, their, turn away from the Lord, then the Lord brings them back, and then they forget about the Lord, and then they turn away, they worship idols, they fall into sin, and then they come back. You know, really, um, when you think about Israel's history, Israel's history is very similar to our individual life, is it not? Because we read back on Israel and we say, boy, what a bunch of dummies. What a bunch of stiff-necked people. Man, if, if, I, if I had God talking to me that way, I would never sin again. Well, guess what? God is speaking to us in even more ways today. He's given us his full counsel, his full word. He's given us his Holy Spirit, but yet we still sin. We are no different than Israel. We forget God, we turn away, we hit rock bottom, something bad happens, then we recognize we need him again, we turn, we repent, we do really well for a while, and then we are enticed again by our sin, and then we slip and then we fall and rinse, repeat. But God wants to make a way, and he wants to know us. He wants to know us intimately, he wants to save us, he wants us to be with him. He doesn't need us to be with him. He wants us to be with him. And so he went through the trouble of sending his only begotten son to die on the cross so that all who believe in him might be saved. Matthew ten thirty-two through 33 says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, that confession of Jesus is Lord. And to say that with boldness, to say that with courage, to say that in the face of people who hate you, who would rather have you die than to say such words, to say that and to truly believe it is how we are known by God. And I get, it comes back to the question and back to the text we were looking at is that can others know that we are known by God? Well, I think it should be obvious to ourselves whether we truly believe. I mean, if you're sitting in your chair in this moment and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm really saved. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to be in heaven if I were to die today. That's probably a good indication that you need to figure that out, that you need to come and ask all the right questions. You need to lay yourself down before at the feet of Jesus. You need to reach out to him and ask him to save your soul. Because being uncertain about your salvation is an indication that you aren't saved. Because God gives us that assurance with the, the Holy Spirit. All who believe are given the Holy Spirit, which confirms with assurance that, yes, if I were to die today, I know where I would go. And I have absolute peace about it. And so you kind of have a good idea yourself. 
And maybe some of you have wrestled with that doubt. And maybe some of you have pretended like you don't. Maybe you're sitting there here this morning and you're thinking like, I don't really know, but other people think I do, and that's good enough for me. Well, in your final day, my friends, let me plead with you. Do not go to your grave uncertain about your salvation. If that's you this morning, I plead with you, I beg with you, come find me after service. We'll go sit in my office, and we'll work that out. We'll work out the salvation with fear and trembling together. We'll pray to the Lord because I don't want you leaving here today unsure of where you're going when you die. I want you to know. So the question is, can other people know? Paul was wanting the church at Corinth to boast of his salvation, to be sure that he is known by God, to be sure that the ministers who've been working with them are indeed known by God. And I think this is a, an important emphasis for the church, is that we should know whether we are known by God. We should know whether one another are known by God. And you know what? We're human people. We can't see into the hearts of men like God can. And so sometimes we get fooled. Sometimes you're fellowshipping with somebody for a long time and then suddenly they fall off the wagon and they, they reject Christ. They say, I don't know if I ever really believed. And you're thinking, we had prayer meetings together. You, you, it seemed like you were praying in the Spirit. You, you were doing kind acts of goodness. You could, you could quote Scripture to me. And here you're saying you never believed or you don't believe anymore. I mean, we miss this stuff sometimes. I'm really fooled on multiple occasions where I thought for sure someone was a true believer. And then they walk away from the faith and claim they never truly believed. They were just going through the motions of it. So with that, I think the Bible does give us, and we're going to pull from uh, components from this text that, that Paul has, has written to the church at Corinth, but we're also going to look at other places in Scripture as well to kind of gather some ideas about what are some of the things we need to look for. And those who are faking their faith, this is not an opportunity for you to create your checklist of how do I fool other people, Okay. This, rather, is how do we know if we can boast about one another's salvation? Because we want to do this. I, I, I want to go to other believers in other churches and other areas and boast about how great your faith is, about how you are truly known by God and how you live for him and how you have forfeited your own lordship and given it to him. Because as we boast about these things, it encourages the church and encourages other people to believe as well as they see your faith. Faith should be on full display. Not, not as something that you're, you're, um, you're not performing. You're not performing trying to get applause for, for how faithful you are, how much more faithful you are than this other person, but rather it should be evident. It should be fruitful. It should be like a, a nice, beautiful apple right on a tree as you walk on by and you just see it and it looks beautiful and it's encouraging and inspiring. And so let's walk through uh, seven evidence that the love of Christ indeed does control us or compel us and that God knows us. So number one, one of the evidence is that there will be a desire to know God's word. Those who are truly known by God will cling to every word that proceeds from his mouth. It's kind of like when, 
when I first started uh, dating Amy, who is my wife, we were high school sweethearts, and when we first started dating, I was just clinging to every single word she would say. And even when we hung up the phone after two hours of talking, I, I would like just meditate back on what she was saying. Just think of all the little details so that next time when we talked, you know, I, I could demonstrate that, yes, I, I, I know your heart because you expressed it to me last time we talked. Now, the unfortunate thing in relationships is as time goes on and as you're watching the ball game, you stop clinging to every word they have to say. And oftentimes, you have to be reminded that you don't listen. And it's true. It happens to all of us. And yes, wives, it even happens to you sometimes where you don't listen to us either anymore quite so intently. But when you think about God, God is far superior to us than our spouses. He is greater than our spouses. He is the Lord of our life, not our spouse. He is the creator. He is the savior. And... As we cling to his words, his words are life. They give us life. They are truth. And how many of us long for truth these days? It's so hard to, to wade through all of the, the narratives and the gaslighting and the lying and the deceit. It's so hard to figure out what is actually going on here. Is there like a, a deep-rooted uh, plan that's happening behind the scenes? Can we take this at face value? I don't know. The thing I love about the Word of God is it is always solid truth. You go to it, it is undiluted truth, and you can take it to the bank every time. It's a firm foundation. The Word of God is truth. And so as you begin to discover that, as you cling to the Lord and what He says, you are built up in His Word and in His truth. And so as believers, that'll be an indication as if we, if we are constantly in his word, like a tree firmly planted by water. Day and night we meditate on his word, not legalistically, not out of some kind of act that we think we can earn salvation or righteousness, but because we want to. We want to know more. And, and I love to see fresh new believers who are truly radically changed who like are obsessed with reading the Bible and want to know all about it, and they read more than anybody. I've, I've been so blown away by new believers who will just read the Bible in like a month after they become a new believer because they just want to know. And then they're, they're just so on fire. But oftentimes, sometimes, just like in a relationship, sometimes that starts to peter out. And you, you just kind of lose interest after a while. And you, you need to be re-encouraged and re-inspired. But ultimately, the believer will engage themselves in private Bible studies and group Bible studies because that's how you truly get to know God's Word. He is our Savior. That's how we know Him. He has made Himself known through His Word. John 8, 47 says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And that's another aspect. When you study the Word of God, are you hearing the voice of your Savior? Or does it repulse you? I've known some people who, as they read the Bible, and they read over a section that they don't agree with, then they recoil from it, and it's like, ugh. No. But if it's your Savior's voice, and if he's speaking absolute truth, it should be life. And even if, it, if it's a little rocky, if it's changing your perspective, 
or if it's transforming your mind, yeah, that could be a kind of a, a shaky process, but you'll be attracted to it. You'll be like, yes, Lord, change my mind. You guys have all seen the meme, right? Steven Crowder sitting at a table. You know, he says, something changed my mind. I think that should be our, our constant attitude is blank, God changed my mind. On every single topic in your life, we should be open to God changing our mind, and that happens through the Scripture. But that will be the sign of a believer, is someone who wants God to change their heart and mind to align with His. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then 1 John 4, 6 says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the scripture, or know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we have to be careful again. When it comes to the scripture, it's not about who knows the most. It's not about who can quote the most verses from memory, but rather, has the word of God changed you? Is it changing you? Do you, do you know the, the word just in head knowledge? Or have you applied it to your heart as well? Has it changed your life? So that's one evidence of true belief or being known by God. Number two, do you have a love for the church? Now, we have all had bad experiences in, our, in the past, right? Experiences that have caused us to um, recoil from church fellowship. Maybe we've gone through some kind of a spiritual abuse Maybe we've just got a bad taste in our mouth from certain individuals who just made church not that appealing for us. Uh, maybe we, we were just upset with the way music was done or we didn't like the length of the sermons or whatever it might be. You, you jump from church to church to church and there's always something that rubbed you the wrong way and caused you to go on to the next one. Okay, so we've all had those experiences. We've all been to multiple church. Pretty much everybody except for Naomi has been to different uh, churches in their life. <laughs> Naomi was born and bred here in, uh, in Clayton by Glenn and Charisse, and she has stuck with us, and thank God for that. Amen? But even though we've all had those kind of experiences, every believer will long to fellowship with the saints, will long to be with the people of God and be able to overlook and work through all the frustrations that come with meeting with other sinful people. Because that's what it is. We're all sinners saved by the grace of Jesus. All of us have flaws and fallacies in our life. So, you know, all of us have personality flaws. Uh, we're not all perfect like, like some people. You know, all, all that. <laughs> and when we come together, sometimes there's friction. Sometimes there's hardship. Sometimes you just don't get along with a person. And that happens. But what is in your heart? Do you have a, a desire to be with the people of God? Do you have a desire to be challenged by other people's perspective or other people's past or journey in their faith? And so that's ultimately what we're talking about here because the true believer will love their brothers and sisters in Christ even to the point of long-suffering. Have you ever truly long-suffered in church fellowship before? I think these days, especially in my generation as a millennial and Gen Z as well, 
I think we just give up too easily. We're not long-suffering for one another. If, if somebody wrongs us once, we're out of there. If something frustrates us for a moment, we're out of there. I don't have time for this, but we are missing out on a huge blessing if we give up that easily on one another. If there's an issue, if there's a problem, then we should all be willing to work through that together because on the other side is glory, is just a true, deep, intimate fellowship and friendship like you have never seen. And if you're, if you're in a marriage, you have felt this. If you have stuck with your spouse, you have felt this. Where you hit a wall in your marriage, things get hard, you're just not getting along, temptations come into your mind, and you're thinking, man, life would be so much easier with this other person as those things happen, and, and then as you just bear down and say, no, I made a commitment. I love this person. I'm with them for life. I made this commitment to God. And as you break through that wall together, What's on the other side? The best your marriage has ever been. And a true intimacy where you can look back and you say, man, look how far we have come. Look at this marriage that, with God's help, we have built. And the same is true with the church in our fellowship. As we work through our issues together, as we break through the walls in our relationships, what's on the other side is deeper Christian fellowship than you have ever experienced in your life. And I hope that you all find that here. And I hope that you all are long-suffering for one another. Because I sure am long-suffering for you. Be long-suffering with me. Thank you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10 says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. 1 John 3, 14 through 15 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we should be committed to loving one another to the point where we can boast about one another's salvation. Are you doing life together? Or do you just have a surface level understanding of one another? Because that's where you're fooled. That's where you don't really know if you can boast about somebody's salvation if you just have a surface level friendship. But we should be getting into each other's lives, not intrusively to the point where it's creepy, where, <laughs> where you're just barging into people's homes. You're not calling before you show up. No, but where you're actually making an effort to do lunch, to come together, to have, to have fellowship, to ask each other the real questions, to not just say, well, how's that shed going? Yeah, you building up that shed? Yeah, what kind of, what kind of wood are you using on that thing? What kind of foundations have you done on it? No, but actually get into, hey, how's your marriage? How, how's, your, how's your Bible study devotion time? Have you, have you taken the time to really love and pay attention to your kids? The real stuff. The true stuff. Hey, brother, are you still struggling with that sin? How you doing? How's your faith right now? Is it strong? Let's get to the real nitty-gritty. And, you know, talking about our building projects and stuff, that, that will happen but never, ever leave 
a situation of fellowship without asking the real good questions, without digging deep into each other's lives to find out the real good stuff so that we can pray for one another. And some people like to say, well, who cares what other people think about me? That's kind of the secular mantra is like, who cares what other people think? You do you. You do you, and they need to just accept you. I, I think we, the Bible is very clear. We, we should care about what other believers think about us, what other righteous believers think about us. And, in fact, we should, to some degree, care what the world thinks. If you look at the qualifications for elders, you need to have a good standing with outsiders in order to be considered for the position of elders. So if, if you're great in the church and then you go on home and you're a total jerk to your neighbors, I mean, what does that say about your faith, right? We should care whether we are in good standing with people. We should care if other people can or cannot boast about our faith. We should care to some degree, not that we are performing for people, but rather if we truly have that good fellowship and friendship, we should care about their feedback, about their constructive criticism. And if we turn out to be insane for Christ, if people, especially outsiders, say, you are a Christian freak, you are insane, Uh, If you are living the godly life, you should wear that as a badge of honor. If people call you insane for believing in the the, uh, invisible boogeyman, for praying to the invisible boogeyman, you should say, yeah, he's invisible. Yes, I pray to him. Yes, he's alive. He died and he rose again. He is my savior. I believe it. I live it. I love him and I am not ashamed. Call me whatever name you want. I love Jesus. And there's no going back now. So if people call you insane for Christ, or if they say, well, he's in his right mind, if Paul's attitude ultimately in ministry was to serve no matter what he was called, to do everything he could so long as it depends on him to live for Christ. Number three, uh, a new Christ-like outlook. When we're born again in Christ, we not only receive a change of status with God, but we experience a total overhaul of our hearts and our minds, a total change of perspective. Because the world, as we know, wants to impress a secular worldview upon everybody. And and if they claim that they're not evangelists for their cause, then they are lying. They are trying to infiltrate every aspect of your life and mine with their secular worldview. Don't believe it for a second when they say they aren't. I mean, if you just look at the way that the world is operating and trying to install a secular worldview into every major institution in this country or in the West, they are indeed trying to implement their worldview and impress it upon us and demand that we celebrate their worldview and their lifestyle, lifestyle values or else. It's, that's the direction that it, everything has been going. And so, as believers, it's so important that we adopt a Christian worldview based off of God's word and that we stick to it, that we do not compromise God's truth. Because as we grow in the knowledge of his word 
And as we increase in our fellowship with one another of the saints, our secular worldview will transform into Christ-like worldview. We will start to see things the way that God sees things. This is a supernatural thing, but we're also participants in this as we study his word and we fellowship. John 3.3 says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again in order to see the way God sees. If a secular person or a worldly person reads the Bible, comes to an understanding of it, understands the Christian worldview, they're still not going to really see it. They're still not going to see it clearly. I think about certain people who you are watching in real time, walking through the mental exercise of what the Bible says in the gospel, apart from actually becoming born again. So you take clinical psychologists like Jordan Peterson, for example, who we have watched in YouTube videos in real time, talking about the reality of God, but from a a psychological standpoint. And you see him even breaking down emotionally as he's considering these things. I think he's right on the edge of a born-again experience, but he will never clearly and truly fully see the gospel until that born-again experience happens, until he's changed, until his heart is, is totally turned from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, until his mind and his eyes are opened to the truth of Scripture. He will never truly see the light of Christ. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Change is what's going to happen when you're born again. It must. And then back to the base text we're looking at today, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it's such a joy and a blessing. When you see somebody living in sin and living for themselves suddenly become born again and have an absolute radical shift, like a sudden, miraculous, radical shift. They were once an addict, they were once living in sin, and now all of a sudden they are living for Christ. And we have seen that happen here in this place. It is a beautiful, awesome, undeniable truth. And some people's change will be subtle. Maybe they're a little closer to that line than others. Some people are way off and deep in sin, and and visibly it's going to be uh, much more recognizable when they change their life. Some people know how to fake it really well. Some people know how to hide their sins really well, and their sins are less on the surface. But man, when God changes you, he changes you. And you cannot become born again unless you are actually, truly changed. If you claim to be a believer and you are still living in sin just like you were before, I don't think a real conversion happened. I don't think you were truly born again. There has to be a change. And over time, that will manifest itself into fruit to which all will see. And so, a new Christ-like outlook. Number four, an attitude of peace. This is one of my favorite things about being born again. Because talking again about the world, the world lives in a constant state of fear, panic, chaos, conflict, uncertainty. 
And the primary reason for this instability and the uncertainty is because of an uncertain relationship with God. And whether they admit it or not, they are uncertain about what's going to happen to them. There's that tension between them and their Creator. And if there's no reconciliation with God, there can be no peace with God, and there can be no peace in this life. So if we want peace, we need to be known by God. We need to have a relationship with Him. Where there is peace, there is God, and there can be peace in everything. Everything? Even torture and suffering? Even persecution? Especially those things. Especially where peace should not be, God gives us peace that passes understanding. And that's, that's a true gift and a true value of a true believer. And you can see it. That's something that the church can see. If somebody's going through a hard time and they're just losing it, they, just, they can't handle this horrible, you know, they just burst, lash out. You can tell because, and, and, and we all do this. We all sometimes slip up and fail. God knows when I'm watching the frustrating sports teams that I follow, and I've confessed this to some of you, but sometimes I just lose it. Like, you know, like, I, I go crazy. My wife, my, my primary sanctifying agent, she will rebuke me, and she will correct me, and she, she knows how to get me. Now, now what she does is if I, she can hear me just start complaining, like, oh, and I'm just giving this negative commentary throughout. And what she does, which stops me in my tracks, is she says, if you keep doing this, then you need to leave. Or I'm not going to watch these games with you anymore. And it's just kind of a slap in the face. It just says, oh, she's right, but I'm just so mad. Because they're not playing up to their potential. They could be playing so much better. Instead, they're playing like horrible. Oh. But then that causes me to take a breath. And just remember, this is just sports. If this is me losing my mind during sports, think about real-world situations where I might have a cause to do such a thing. So we all slip and fall, but ultimately there should be a constant attitude of peace. As the world is falling apart, as the world is complaining about the way things are, the, the rising prices, all this kind of stuff, is your attitude an attitude of peace? Such as, yeah, all those things are happening, but it is well with my soul. Jesus is the Lord of my life. The Bible says he is working for the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purposes. My friends, if you love him, if you are called and you have answered the call of his purposes, he is working for your good. The, the same cannot be said about those who hate God and about those who reject his calling. Because the Bible is very clear. And if we have that kind of attitude, if we know he is working for our good, we can have that kind of peace. Romans 5.1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 10.36, The word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, because he is Lord of all. John 14.27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, but I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Fellow Christian, where is your peace? 
Why are you allowing the things in the world to bring you such distress? You have all that you need. You have the assurance of salvation. You have Christ as your, your partner in life. You have the Holy Spirit within you. What else do you need? His grace is sufficient for you. Stop allowing these things to keep you up at night thinking about what could possibly happen because you know what's ultimately going to happen, don't you? All these people who are deceivers and liars and thieves, they will stand before God. They will get their judgment. You, because you love him, you'll be welcomed into his kingdom with open arms and you will know peace. You will know love forevermore. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, but you will be with him. You will be in peace forevermore. My friends, keep your eyes fixed on that, and that is the peace that he gives us. Next, you will be led by the Lord. Uh, You've heard it said that everybody worships something. Another way to put it is everyone has somebody or something as the Lord of their life. And I would say a vast majority of people make themselves the Lord of their own life. But sometimes they like to share that with other people or other groups or other institutions. I know even many Christians who divide the lordship of God with their political party. Yes. I know Christians who take some of Christ's lordship and they give it to their political party. And everything they're doing is banked on whether their political leader wins or loses or what they they hang on every word that their political leader has to say my friends do not give man lordship over your life that belongs exclusively with christ and you know what where your political leaders intersect with the lordship of christ yes rejoice in those things encourage those things but remember who the lord is Don't forget, it's not man, it's Christ. Christ is your Lord. And so people like to be led by all sorts of things. A lot of people like to just claim lordship over their own life and whatever they think, that's ultimately the truth and that's how it will be. We need to forfeit all that. We need to make him the Lord of our life and be led by him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 it says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for, who for their sake died and was raised. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12.3, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So if you are truly saved, Christ will be Lord of your life. Next, regularly practices good works. And we have just two more left here. How much responsibility do we bear as believers to do good works? I mean, if if ultimately our salvation is not dependent on our works, but on his works, then we shouldn't have to do anything at all, right? Just lay here and be saved. Yeah. Or, you know, if God wants to stop you from sin, and he will. If he allows you to do it, maybe that was his will, right? I mean, that's the mindset of some people. 
I guess we don't got to do anything. He did it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, except for this one time when I want to do something else. Right? But the Bible teaches that we do bear some responsibility in our own development as Christians and decision-making. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And also elsewhere, Paul points out that physical training is of some value, and then he adds that spiritual training has value for all things. But yet he still says that physical training has some value, and that's the pocket that we're in right now, what we're talking about. So, so long as it depends on you, so long as that physical training has some value, then ultimately we are responsible for our actions and our decision-making. Because Christ will save us, but we need to respond. And our response is to do good work so long as it depends on us. As God gives us opportunity, we need to step through that door and do good works. And part of that is we imitate Christ. And part of that is we study the word and we come together for fellowship. We lean on him, we make him Lord. And as we're doing this, we will learn how to do good works. I oftentimes have to pray to God, God, show me how to love this person. God, show me how to love this person going through a difficult time that I know nothing about. And I don't know how to come alongside them and love them well to the point where they are rejoicing in you because I'm loving them as you would love them. I pray that all the time because I know that I often fall short. Maybe some of you have been in a place of hurting or loneliness and you've longed to hear something from the Lord, and I or anybody else in this church have failed to reach out, have failed to call you, have failed to come alongside you in your hour of need, maybe because we didn't know you were in an hour of need, or maybe because we knew but we were too busy, or maybe because we just didn't want to go. And my prayer to God is, Lord, help me to love people better. Help me to know when I'm supposed to call someone in their hour of need. Help me, Lord, to know if I'm supposed to go to the hospital and sit next to the bed for an hour and talk with them. Lord, help me to know. And as we study the word, as we pray together, as we fellowship, as we watch one another in our good works, we will grow in these things. James 2.18 says, Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, they go hand in glove, faith and works. Because if you have faith, you will do good works. There's no two ways about it. Faithful people live faithfully. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then listen to this part. For we are his workmanship. Okay, so after saying he did all the work of salvation... Then it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he walked up that hill for us. We should walk for him. That's how it works. Our walking in faith and righteousness is a response to his walking up that hill. We should walk for him and walk as he walked. Titus 3.14 says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 
Finally, the last evidence of true belief is understanding the value of correction or of chastening. Those who have born again, been born again will embrace and understand the value of being corrected, of being rebuked, and being judged. In your Christian life, if you have never been corrected, if you have never been rebuked, if you have never undergone training, then you have not really stepped out in faith to grow. Because as you do that, as you're transparent with your life, then your flaws are going to come out. And, and that takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there and say, this is who I truly am, and I want to grow, and to, to make yourself available to other believers to help you through correction, even rebuking sometimes, and through training. And so as a believer, you know the scriptures which talk about the value of being disciplined, the value of being corrected. And all of these acts are acts of love. But yet again, millennials, Gen Z, we view any source of criticism as a hateful act. Somehow, it, the world, again, back to worldviews, the world has flipped that completely on its head. Where people believe that if, if you challenge them at all, if you correct them, if you point out an error, then you hate them. But the Bible says that if you're doing this out of love and care and, and hoping for them to grow and to improve, that is a great act of love. How do we know this? Well, this is what God does for us as well. Consider Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, we re when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you see a brother or sister living in sin and you say nothing, you do not love them. The Bible is very clear about this. If we love someone and we see a clear sin, a pattern of sinful behavior, and we do not call them out on it in a, in a loving way, then we do not love them. Because it is loving to care about the way one another is living for him. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Proverbs 12.1, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. That's my favorite one. <laughs> he who hates reproof is stupid. Uh, Proverbs 13.24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. This translates, of course, into our family life as well. Parents, discipline your kids. Church, discipline members of the church, people of the church. And this is not a license for us to be tyrants or terrors to those who God has given us authority over. If God, God has given you authority over your children to raise them up in the Lord, don't use discipline as an excuse for tyranny because if you have any tyranny in you you'll read this verse and you'll take full advantage of it but god wants us to apply this in a christ-like way and if you don't know how christ disciplines read the gospels watch how he interacted with his disciples sometimes sometimes you even have to look at someone and say get behind me satan in a very serious way as christ did with peter but then sometimes there's a gentle rebuke. Most of the time it's gentle. Most of the time it's long-suffering. 
It's patience, gentleness. But sometimes, as my wife's favorite thing to do, you got to lay down the hammer. You got to bring the justice. So, in closing, you know, Paul talks a lot about um, how he wants the church at Corinth to boast based off of their hearts, not the outward appearance. So when it comes to all these things that we talked about, all these different evidences of true belief, of being known by God, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is what is in a person's heart. Because some people might look at somebody and say, boy, they're a filthy sinner. Look at that, look at that habit they struggle with. But as we get to know one another and we're in each other's lives, we recognize that, okay, there, there's a lot more to this than what's on the surface. And as we get to know each other, then we can, in our own minds and in our own hearts, know that, yes, they are a true believer. They have flaws, but they are a true believer. I believe they are known by God because they express the evidence of being known by God. They love the word. They're in the word. They love, they love the church. They love fellowship and being built up in fellowship. That they are constantly being sanctified and showing evidence of growth in their faith. They're not like they used to be. And yeah, their, their growth is pretty slow, but over those 10 years I've been with them, they have overcome so much. And, and you wouldn't recognize them from 10 years ago. So slow growth, fast growth, we can see that they're growing. We can see that they're changing their perspective. They love to tell people that Jesus is the Lord of their life. They love to live for him. They love to participate and do good works, to sign up for Clayton Closet, to help out, to, to bring soup on Sundays, to bless the community. They love to participate in good works. And also, through church discipline, they've stuck around. They, they've endured a little bit of embarrassment, but then now they're, they're restored. So with all these different things, I hope as a church that we can look at one another and we can truly say that you, sister, are saved. Brother, you are saved. I've been with you. I've been with you in intimate times, in the worst of times, in the best of times, and I'm going to boast of your salvation. And so if we're not there yet, I'd encourage you, if you look around the room and you see somebody and you think, I don't know if they're saved, they're here, but are they really saved? I'd encourage you to get to know that person. Again, not intrusively, respect each other's social boundaries, but get to know one another. And if you're unsure of your salvation, and I know I've kept you here a little longer than usual, but if you're unsure of your salvation, this is crucial. Don't leave here today until you're sure. I will stay here with you as long as it takes to be sure. And so as we close in service today, I just want to play a song, and I want, as the song is going, just to meditate, for you to meditate and to pray. And uh, if, if you are in your seat, if you're sitting there, and you recognize that I need to be born again, I am not born again, I need to be born again, I want to encourage you, just as eyes are closed and people are meditating on the song, to just raise your hand. And any one of our prayer warriors, any one of our elders uh, or our deacons will We'll come alongside you, and we'll pray with you. We'll talk with you. We'll stay here as long as it takes. Well, let me say a word of prayer, and then we'll close in that song, okay? Let's pray.
Father, how good it is to know you, how even better it is to be known by you. You are a gracious and good Savior. You are the definition of love. Father, help us as a church to be more like you in all that we do. And I pray, God, if there is anybody here who doesn't truly know you or know if they're known by you, God, may you help them to know here today. Father, introduce yourself in a powerful way to people here this morning. And Father, may we all leave here today and say a big mighty amen. May we all boast about one another, boast of the salvation that you have brought to Clayton, brought to this community. And Father, may that boasting go out into the world and may others who don't know want to know. Father, draw people to yourself. And I pray that you'd use this church in a big way to do so. I love you. I thank you so much for all that you do, God. We can't thank you enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.